0: You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. Well, in a week where allegedly lost babies and lost iPads seem to drown out another step in the right direction along the road of structural reform, some policy signals remain mixed. The establishment of the Transnet National Ports Authority as an independent subsidiary of Transnet, but some... Obvious question, remain about what independent actually means in this context. Kauteng's COVID third wave is more tsunami as the province's largest public hospital remains closed and globally markets breathed a sigh of relief following last week's mini taper tantrum and overnight the positive news of uh, US President Joe Biden's infrastructure bill receiving bipartisan support all add uh, to an interesting mix of events for business to digest. It feels risk on out there but the only major indicator that didn't play ball uh, is the U.S. 10-year yield that is struggling to push above one and a half percent and it had uh, plenty of reason to do so given the bipartisan uh, agreement to push ahead with that 580 billion U.S. dollar infrastructure bill. Well, to put things into perspective, I'm joined by uh, Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers, Raymond Parsons, Professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University and Isaac Schlanger, Chief Economist at Alexander Forbes. Uh, Warwick, Kick us off. What is the post-tantra market outlook after last week's Fed's uh, new signals on interest rates and uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's comments to Congress this week? It certainly feels like a bit of a washout.
1: Good afternoon, Michael. It certainly does. Uh, I mean, look, bull markets tend to be very skittish uh, by their very nature. But uh, by the same token, even as we've seen the, the Fed sort of talk a bit of talk uh you know it's important to bear in mind i mean the the kind of guidance that's coming out here is is something like two and a half years ahead i mean um uh, they're talking about an interest rate hike uh twice by the end of twenty twenty three now i mean that's that's a heck of a long way out and i mean when we're talking the fed in the u s we we're talking literally a quarter of a percent, so it doesn't seem particularly Armageddon-ish Add to that uh, the uh, likes of the ECB still looking very dovish on their monetary policy uh, so far. And I think at the end of the day, what we have is a market that is still uh, being fueled along by free carry. Mm. Now, of course, um, central banks support uh, economies at the end of the day, but they also, as a result of their activities, wind up supporting markets. So... Frankly, the bull is in the box until it's not. I mean, for the time being, the monetary policy environment for, to support business will continue to support markets as well.
0: And either that means uh, that the dollar uh, going back into its weakening trend, we saw it weaken again overnight. Uh, what does that mean for the long-term trend outlook, uh, or at least the medium-term trend outlook for the RAN?
2: I think if you just look at uh, its behavior over the past uh, you know, week or so, uh, it's, it's all over the place. But short term, it will remain likely weak. Medium to longer term, there has to be some strengthening that happens in the dollar as the US Fed uh, you know, tighten monetary policy. I think the impo- more important uh, driver is really market expectations, not necessarily the actual hiking itself. So if they say they will hike in 2023, it means they'll have to start uh, reducing their quantitative easing in 2022. So if they announce around in September this year to say they will start tapering in January next year and end perhaps December next year, it means markets will price that full in and we will see the dollar strengthen, which implies that emerging market currencies, including the rent, are likely to start weakening uh, sometime in, in September going forward. I think that's, that's more what we expect typically uh, mm-hmm. once the Fed has signaled its pivot to Mm. to start to to tighten policy.
0: And that still remains fairly bullish for local commodity producers as well. But I want to stay with the Fed a while longer, Raymond. I I watched uh, the congressional testimony by Jay Powell with with great interest because it seemed very politicised. You've got the Republicans on the one hand saying that the Democrats are making Powell's aim of full employment almost impossible with the uh, stimulus checks that are being given to US citizens. Uh, it's keeping them firmly rooted to the couch. You've got the Democrats throwing back at the Republicans that the stimulus is needed because of what Trump did during uh, his presidency. I suppose uh, who will be proven right will will uh, wash out in the fullness of time. Which way do you see this going?
3: Hi Michael, look I, I think it's quite correct to say that at the moment there are optimists and there are indeed pessimists about inflation in the United States. And uh, I think when one tries to find the common factor is they all agree there will be inflation. I think that's accepted, and there is already evidence that that's happening. But the two points of difference are firstly, uh, is, it, is it transitory or will it become embedded? And secondly, when it happens, what will be the pace of, of the taper? And, and I think I think the jury is still out. I must say in terms of the u.s inflation i find the stance of the fed rather like some augustine who said lord make me good but not yet so i think the issue is still down the road uh, they will endeavor i think to taper as gently as they can but there are a number of unknowns mm. i think we must nonetheless as we talk about inflation and growth in the United States as a major locomotive of the world economy, I must say to have 7% growth and 3% inflation is a wonderful bargain. I wish we could have that in South Africa. And coming back to the issue of, of, of the timing, I would also say not when this will happen or how, but what we've got to say is if we have another year we as an emerging market particularly must get our economic house in order
2: Mm -hmm. use
3: this time wisely to put certain fundamentals in place so that when the turning point comes we're much better equipped to deal with it
0: And on that point, you know, Isa, we are now faced with this third wave here in Gauteng, which I said in my introduction is more like a tsunami. And I'm uh, reminded as we look to the weekend and an expected announcement of whether or not we're going to go back into a harder lockdown of what John Maynard Keane said, uh, when the facts change, I tend to change my mind. What do you do, sir? Would the government be taking Uh, A look in the rearview mirror to say well when we've locked down the economy or when we've been soft the the trajectory of the pandemic has tended to follow the a similar pattern regardless is it it going to take that into account now when it comes up uh, with whatever plan we have to deal with this third wave
2: Michael I think firstly we we really mismanaged uh, the response to this third wave the signs were all there if we were to look at India you know, political events, religious events, and the Delta three variant, which made India to be in a state that it was untenable. Um, we saw this already in May, so we could have taken some restrictions, but at this point in time, I think there is no appetite to put the economy into a hard lockdown like we had in the first wave last year. It's simply just damaging for for incomes, it's damaging for companies, yet on the fiscal side, we do not have the capacity to actually support households and to support companies. So whatever the restrictions that are going to be imposed, they would not have to uh, uh, impact on businesses and potentially on working people uh, continuing to maintain their employment, simply because we can't afford to do it from an economic point of view, which is to say, the response to COVID is now turning out to be a big constraint on economic policy response uh, that is needed to actually reduce the, the levels of unemployment that we've seen continue to skyrocket. So government is in between a hard place and a rock yeah. to, to try and maintain both the economy, but also uh, you know, give some, some, some room for the health sector to, to handle the, the rising infections.
0: A real Hobson's choice, Warwick, if you look at Gauteng, 25% of the country's population, over a third of the country's economic output. To to put Gauteng back into a 21-day hard lockdown, surely untenable with uh, no economic uh, guns to point at the problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, bottom line is, Michael, that that we've shifted into the situation now um, that we're almost a, a wartime economy. I mean, um, it's uh, it's it, it's it's like a, you know the start of any war. I mean, asset markets and confidence and so on are utterly damaged, and the sheer need to then uh, soldier through uh, comes to the fore. And I think we're in that situation where we basically one has to do the best you can on a, on a health outcome, but the the, the reality is that. Um, Uh, you wish your your, your medical staff good luck and uh, try and help out and resources, and everyone else needs to take care for themselves. They have to be responsible for themselves. And and that is the reality of of, of this uh, Mm. third wave. I don't think it's going to have the same economic um, impact as the first, and we actually cannot allow it to, both from a resource point of view and, I think, from, 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 from a getting the economy going again point of view. We simply can't play this the same way as we played the first
0: absolutely raymond how does president romapozza now achieve his recently expressed wish of balancing lives and livelihoods or as uh, lennon would say what is to be done
1: well michael
3: i would share what has been said so far but i would perhaps say in a way it would be too late to do anything drastic now on the economic front because the peak is coming in a week's time so i I mean uh, in a sense that particular stable door has already been shut. More importantly, other than going for any measures which might be damaging to to the livelihoods uh, of the population, I would say there are three things. The first is to expedite the vaccine rollout, excessively emphasizing the using the private sector even more than we're using it now. I think that that's one level at which we have to address it. The second is there's seems to be quite a lot of evidence now saying that the age of vaccination should be reduced from 60 and perhaps to 50 or even 40, because there's evidence there that that that's where it could do some good. Because I've said that, in fact, if you look at the COVID-19, it's rather like, in fact, Russian roulette. You don't know which chamber has the bullet at whichever age. And then finally, We've just gone back to a level three. Let's enforce those, especially with, with, the, uh, with the large gatherings and, and, and the other rules which make a lot of sense. Let's be seen to be enforcing that. But it comes back, of course, to the point which what made at the end of the day, personal vigilance is the trump card here from now on.
0: And, in fact, that that is going to take its economic toll in any event. Uh, I can imagine people taking uh, the decision to go back into their bubbles. It's going to impact uh, hospitality and tourism, which is already on its knees, having just recently spent uh, a week in the Kruger Park. I know there have been lots of letters in Business Day bemoaning the state of the park, but I think considering the financial constraints that they're under, Park Management uh, is actually doing a pretty good job from my vantage point. We drove all the way from Crook's Corner to Crocodile Bridge. Warwick, I want to move on to uh, Transnet and the other important news of the week that we're finally going to have this independent ports operator. But my question here is about how independent you can be as a subsidiary that's still reliant on the holding company balance sheet.
1: Well, I think it depends on how independent you're allowed to be and um, what you Infrastructure, or shall we say, constitution of the company are, and of course, what is the aim of what you're trying to do? Is it some new permanent uh, creation that you have here, or is it a transitional feature with an alternative destination in mind? I mean, you know, the, there was a huge opportunity missed um, by the ANC in the 1990s when they inherited a state that they really could have. Uh, taken the shares and the likes of ESCOM and, and Transnet and so on and, and distributed them in, to the population as reparations uh, for the damage done by apartheid. Um, and that chance has clearly been wasted because if you now look at most peristatals, most of them are geared up to the point where the debt pretty much wipes out the equity value. Um, I, I mean, in the case of Transnet, that's a, it's another one that's quite heavily geared. So, what does the separation of the ports authority do? I mean, it's certainly ports are valuable assets. They mm-hmm. have, um, uh, they don't have competition issues like a lot of other assets do. Um, so, so, perhaps the act of simple separation is a start in another process. So yep. I, I suppose the jury's out on this one. There
0: was a very interesting headline trumpeted in uh, Business Day this week uh, all about the ANC shifting stance on land to appease the EFF. Uh, and we did have uh, Raymond, uh, the President, state uh, recently that this whole idea of custodianship of land by the state is, is really not where his policy is headed. However, we do have uh, this this kind of appeasement inside Parliament between the ANC and the EFF that has caused a lot of people to prick up their ears and say, well, what is the ANC's actual position on expropriation without compensation? Where where does this take us to now in the broader EWC debate?
1: Well, Michael, I, I think
3: it takes us to where we perhaps don't want to be, the sense that everyone is committed to land reform, wants to see it succeed, but how you do it, is really becoming quite quite decisive now. And I just want to build on what former finance minister Trevor Manuel said this week when he said, look, I really don't think it's necessary to do what you want to do to have to change the constitution. He referred to the research done by Iker Stellenbosch University earlier this year, which indicated that already, even under the present constraints, uh, we have now transferred about two thirds of what we Aim to do in terms of land reform, in terms of the National Development Plan. And he speaks with authority because at the time he chaired the National Planning Commission, which produced those, those targets and insisted that they should be met. And then secondly, the fact that there's now negotiations about wanting to change the Constitution in order to achieve the land reform goals, appears to depart, he says, from what ANC policy in fact is, which says that land reform must be put in the context of a a non-racial democratic South Africa so in other words he's saying yes of course we must accelerate land reform but we must try to do so without polarizing uh, or indeed creating more uncertainty uh, by wanting to change the constitution Mm. so I think what worries me and I think might worry other people here it's not so much the technicalities around the Constitution, but to say we are applauding other reform measures of the recent past which could make a big difference in putting this economy at a tipping point for better economic prospects and better chances of implementing a reform program. But we run the danger that as much as we applaud that, if down the passage other decisions are being taken which enhance uncertainty, well, then you are simply going to neutralize the good news mm. that you want wanting to see on the reform front. And the problem is that at the end of the day, what will happen if you don't have a consistent and coherent approach to reform? Those who are hostile to reform will say, you see, those reforms don't work. That's what they will say.
0: It can't be half-baked. <laughs> Well, that, that, that's the issue, Raymond. I just want to move on to ISA quickly so we can all get through this because it's an important topic. ISA, you can't have half-baked reforms. Good news on energy lifting uh, the self-gen uh, cap to 100 megawatts. Good news on SAA. Good news uh, on the ports. And yet here we have EWC where, where what was uh, proposed bears little resemblance to the bill that was passed for comment. And it just creates renewed uncertainty. And to Raymond, Raymond's point, two steps forward, two steps back.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And if you just look it over, we're talking of a state that has failed to manage state-owned companies. Now that same state has to be given the responsibility to be the custodian of the the land. Uh, It's it's quite a a conflicting message. But also if we just take the point that in countries where governance institutions uh, are weak and they do not enforce or they do not take up the role that they are supposed to do properly, you will have a problem if you, you take you know, ownership of much of these countries' assets into the state's hands. Examples are being given of China and Singapore and to an extent Rwanda. Those countries have a different governance system to what we have here, which enables them to have sort of a state-driven economy. We don't have the right governing structures, and we have weak institutions that are susceptible to political Mm -hmm. influence. That will just open a room for patronage networks within the political political space. And that is what we have learned over the last 10 years. It's quite detrimental for confidence, detrimental for fixed investment.
0: And do we really want to be emulating uh, what we see this week with the closing of Apple Daily in Hong Kong and that kind of suppression to allow that Chinese uh, form of communism uh, with certain capitalistic elements to, uh, to pervade? Certainly not with our constitution. Warwick, what do you make of it?
1: Michael, I, I think a big part of the whole uh, cocktail here is, first of all, uh, whose land do you want to take and who do you want to give it to? So there's some parties who would like to take it um, and give it to their brothers if the vBS is any um indication um others would like to see the kind of issues that we saw um, solved or potentially solved when we when we saw the ngonyama trust uh, suffer a severe legal setback and i, I think that's very important i mean the the, the the this this idea that people are on land um, that they they still cannot have any real benefit from they cannot borrow from uh, a bank uh, against this land they cannot do anything to really develop it i mean this this kind of um, uh, position where we've had effectively leasehold uh, properties uh, mm. in in the in in the current sort of land reform mm. we've seen the farmers haven't been able to go to banks and get loans and it it really just has been Uh, a failure and at the end of the day it goes back to the problem of who owns that asset and as Isaiah pointed out if it's in state hands there's a good shot that it's going to get mismanaged Uh, so yeah I mean I think what we're looking at here though is the end game i think in a, in the anc resolution that was made in 2017 it has to run its course and if the eff continues to block it then they might find that it gets tossed out of parliament altogether and that's the end of the discussion
0: yeah that's a lose-lose scenario and really what we're looking for is more of a desoto type option where people can actually realize the value of that land just as we conclude we've got a couple of minutes to go raymond uh, yeah, i'm looking forward to uh, chatting to the saab next week it's their centenary year and And the actual birth date uh, back in 1921 was June 30th for the Black Tower, as it uh, colloquially became known, uh, not just because of its obsidian black building, but sometimes for uh, its uh, opaque mechanistics. Uh, What do you make of uh, the way the Saab has discharged its mandate? We've got the governor who was uh, uh, announced as governor of the year recently as well. Your thoughts on 100 years of the Reserve Bank?
3: Well, Michael, I think we should congratulate the Reserve Bank on on a century, on being 100 not out, given some of the challenges it's faced over time. Uh, It's a great achievement, and I think we must be very proud of our Reserve Bank uh, and what it's done over the decades. Uh, I might just mention that it's interesting. If indeed John Maynard Keynes was alive today, he would applaud the achievements and the track record of the bank on the whole, because he chaired the selection committee which chose the first governor of the South African Reserve Bank. He did that at the request of young smuts at the time. So he had a small sort of tangential interest, uh, I think, in the performance of the bank. I was not aware I think of that. He's right. What's
0: that? I said I was not aware of that. Thanks for sharing that bit of uh, historical well, trivia.
3: And I think the important point here is that We've had stability uh, from the bank to ensure uh, both in terms of our monetary policy and our our financial stability. Highly professional body. It's important that its autonomy also rests on the fact that it's self-financing. So there are several central banks which have to depend on the Treasury for its financing, and that's not necessarily a good thing uh, because their taps can be turned off if, if they don't like what they're doing. Have they made mistakes? Oh, of course, over a hundred years, it's unlikely that you did everything right. Uh, they didn't act quickly enough when we had the Great Depression. They didn't want to leave the gold standard, although that was inevitable. Uh, I know from time to time we might disagree with the timing and the extent of particular decisions. But the bottom line is, we have here an anchor in our economy, which we should be very proud of, we should respect its autonomy, the fact that it's arm's length from from politics, where it should be, and as long as there's transparency and professionalism in what they do, I think they can look forward to another century of
2: serving South Africa well.
0: Very well said, Raymond Isa. Your uh, uh, scorecard for the Reserve Bank at 100 not out.
2: I think they have done quite a stellar job, particularly if we just look over the last five years where there has been quite a lot of, uh, you know, attack on the central bank, but a weakness in all institutions in the country in general that led us to be downgraded by credit rating agencies. The central bank was that one pillar of economic strength that has always saved us well as far as credit rating agencies. Which, just, which is just testament to say they have done a stellar job, even when we look in terms of their response to COVID, it has been quite aggressive and timely, uh, which, which means they, they have, you know, they have done their job quite well and, uh, and saved the South African society uh, in, a, in a good way.
0: Warwick, about uh, 15 seconds ago, your thoughts?
2: You know, the song is like the, um, the company
1: Computer Guy. Uh, They never get praised when it goes right. They're always getting shouted at when it goes wrong. And if they drop dead, you're in deep trouble.
0: (laughs) Well, there you have it, I think. uh, Unequivocal that we need to be very thankful for the Black Tower, as it's uh, colloquially known. Here's hoping that uh, Leseche and other Reserve Bank governors can uh, be like the mighty hash and uh, take us to 200 not out uh, for one of our most critical uh, institutions in the economy. Uh, That was Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers. Raymond Parsons, professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University, and Isaac Plunger, chief economist at Alexander Forbes, putting things in perspective.